Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. Today we're talking about... Doing well in a polarized society. And this is stuff that we probably should have top of mind anyway, but we just went through a very acrimonious election season and a real nail-biter of an election. So I think it's, it's particularly helpful for us now to think about what resources philosophy could contribute to understanding our situation or to helping us cope with it. What did you have in, in mind, Dan? Considering that it seems like no one really got everything they wanted, uh, or as the, the, the great philosopher Jagger once said, you can't always get what you want, but sometimes you just might find you get what you need. Um, outside of you know the good Mick Jagger, we have this this feeling of um, divisiveness and polarization, and it is not really good for I, I'd say our mental health to be constantly living in this. Uh, that being the major overtone of the entire. Uh, way that we look at the world, it becomes this incredibly uh, constant grading uh, fight and and constant like uh, stress upon you, and it's it's not going to lead you to your best life, and it's probably not going to lead you to uh, treating others around you in the best way possible. Yeah, you know things are so polarized right now. And this has been going on for over a decade that, you know, on dating apps, for example, people won't consider dating somebody who's from the opposite political party. And, and many people are now are in, in effectively in bubbles in their social media where they, they have very few connections or friends from the opposite side. For myself as, as like a registered independent who doesn't belong to either party, but, you know, who who strategically pivots against the one that I think is the biggest trouble at the time, it's been, you know, something to see. I, I remember 10 years ago, I would try to get into discussions on Facebook with people uh, who I knew, you know, from, from childhood. And it always went badly when you'd point out, well, you know, there's, I, I wasn't doing both sides-ism, right? Uh, I, was, I was saying, well, you know, like this point is, is actually quite correct, but you're going too far with it. And man, they, they, so quickly they would say, oh, you're, you're one of them. You're on the other side. And you'd be like, no, no, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like see things from, from different points of view. And that is something that is becoming more and more difficult to do. I, I would say, um, in, in the situation that we're in. So and it's, it's way worse today than it was 10 years ago or even five years ago. And not only are we being sorted into silos from our like the media and the social media that we tend to consume, but we're also self-sorting ourselves. And there's been a large movement of people like physically moving to places where oh, you are living with only people that have a, a similar outlook to you. And so like no longer is just being neighbors and having to deal with a community in which that is a thing um, that that brings you into good relationships with people that you happen to have different political views um, where, where now it's like everyone that you know also has a very similar political view. And I guess you've also seen this with uh, a lot of 
uh, Christianity within the United States, where um, the churches themselves are becoming incredibly pluralized as well, um, kind of to the detriment of the church-going populace, if you think that is something to be beneficial. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's not just religious groups, it's fandoms, it's all sorts of things, you know, where, where uh, matters are being split down the middle. Uh, well, or not necessarily down the middle, it could be like, you know, one third goes over this way and the other two thirds goes over this way. But there's there's definitely a chasm or a divide that, that has emerged. I, I wouldn't even say is emerging, right? It's there and, and we're living in it. And it's one of... Um, mutual distrust and misunderstanding and a willingness on on the part of some people to go pretty far in not just using rhetorical uh you know techniques and and what we you know what one could call verbal violence in some cases you know using a lot of the words that we're not going to use in a radio program um you know, pretty routinely, but to the to the extent of physical violence and intimidation um if we don't get some sort of handle on this, we're in real trouble as a society. And there's nothing that, you know, I know a lot of people like to think of America as being exceptional. Um, and there is this thing called American exceptionalism, but, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not a true thing. You know, there's nothing to say that this experiment that we have is going to last another hundred years. Um, and a lot of it will depend on whether we can, be members of one society and I, I don't want to say everybody gets along as one big happy family or anything like that. That's never been the case, right? <laughs> and we have some serious issues to, to grapple with and to, to start addressing. Uh, but if we can't form any sort of consensus that isn't based just on wheeling and dealing and, and uh, who has power at the time, if we can't make any appeals to something that goes beyond that, that transactional way of looking at things or that us versus them way of looking at things, I think we're in real trouble. And, and people are, some people are, are worried about that. I think a lot more people are worried about what, what they perceive the other side to be doing, you know, or their own, their own side not doing enough. Um, I think more people are worried about that. I think it's a really good way to kind of bring us to one of the central thoughts here in that feeling of alienation or you know the state of experiencing of being isolated from a group in which you should belong or which you should be involved and it feels like we are not only being alienated from our other countrymen yeah um but we're also being alienated from our government and i guess one of the, the big ways i see this is that you know as a you know uh representative democracy like early on you know the, the house was the chamber of the legislature which was supposed to at least at a federal level level represent the population and you know at the very beginning we had 30,000 people per representative and now it's at 700,000 people per representative and we haven't increased the size of the house since 1912 it used to be a, a rather um regular thing to do congressional re um apportionment um and and it's one of the things that's enacted in the constitution that allows the congress to increase its size um and we we just have failed to have the political will to actually do that and you know once we we don't feel 
that we have a really good say in our representatives and then you feel that the, the government doesn't actually represent you or your yeah. things that you care about. And especially when you get to like the big office, you know, the presidency, you know, it, it can really turn into uh, just uh, us versus every bad person that you can possibly conceive of um, as, as your boogeyman that you're going against if they're not the, the person for you. And this, this tribalism that has brought us away from that cohesive union that uh, I guess they, they asked for the, the more perfect union. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we ever historically had a great uh, consensus going on, right? I think that, that sometimes we've certainly had more, but there's certainly been more civility and more willingness to work with other people, which I think I think some people kind of found boring, you know. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's an interesting thing that this election, so many people did come out to vote on both sides. Well, and even for, you know, like the Libertarians or, or for, for some other parties as well. It seems like only the Libertarians managed to get a significant portion of, of the vote this time around as a third party. But a lot of people came out, but they came out I would say mainly to say we can't let those other people win. In in the past, when we had a lot more, a lot more consensus and compromise, I think a lot of people found elections a bit more boring and and didn't participate as much. So it's it's sort of you know it's a it's a two edged sword. We ideally we'd have everybody participating, you know, because it is important mm-hmm. to have people's voices heard. In other countries, like for for example Australia, if you don't vote, you actually get a fine. For not voting here in America, there's all these you know hoops to jump through. Um, it, many many people make it difficult for other people to vote, um, and and you know we're kind of an unusual country in that way. I, on Twitter, my my friends from all over the place remark about how it, it just seems so weirdly difficult to vote in America, um, and and so you know people are are definitely engaged. Um, but they're engaged, you could say, to be enraged, you know, rather than uh, lo- really looking for a lot of solutions. And, I, and I'm painting with a, a broad brush here, right? There are many people out there who are solution-oriented, who are looking to work with other reasonable people. But it seems, it feels like those people, and I count myself as one of them, are, are in the minority, you know, at this point in time. Maybe yeah, that's count me of, up as. Oh, go ahead. As uh, count me down as one of those people that are very much for. I would prefer to have boring politics, <laughs> politics that are not constantly in my face and trying to uh, induce rage in me. I feel like this. Yeah. Uh, constant drumbeat of of like almost political warfare. Yeah. Is is not good for the the well-being of basically anyone in this country except for those that are directly profiting off of it yeah you know um politics in part is about deliberation and deliberation is a rational function 
we're supposed to, you know, I, you know, the way that the political system is, has worked, even taking America out of the picture, but just thinking about classical political theory, you've got competing interests, you've got people who have different perspectives, and they still have to live in one society, whether it's a Greek city-state or an empire or pick whatever else you want, they have to find some way to live together and to not, you know, be at each other's throats and to, to get some basic things done. The aqueducts need to run somewhere, right? Somebody has to uh, pay for that, that sort of stuff. And so there's a lot of decisions that, that do need to be made. And deliberation is one of the things that we can do as human beings that, that raises us from the level of the mere animals. And I think you're right, that's been short-circuited in a lot of cases. It's, it's almost as if instead of having um, rational, persuasive appeals, um, the emphasis is on just let's, let's push everybody's buttons as much as we can. You know? It's almost as if it's um, the extension of the election to constant election. Yes, um, that's, where... that's right. Yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, instead of, okay, we have a point where we're going to choose leaders and they are going to rationally deliberate for the good of all the people in the country and try to mix these competing interests of these disparate groups, but we still are all under one umbrella, yeah. has turned into a constant catfight for, you know, you know, either two, four, or six-year intervals, depending on the election. Yeah. You know... Again, to compare America to other countries, quite a few other places specify when you can actually run. So like in British politics, you can't you can't run for two years <laughs> before you're actually being elected. I, I forget exactly what it is, but it's not a long time, you know, and it would be awesome if we actually had stuff like that. Um, there's so many ways. I mean, we could do an entire sequence on the so many different ways in which um, our, our democratic processes have been subverted. But going back to the, that issue of alienation that you were talking about, I think that's part of what makes a lot of people feel despondent. And in, in some ways that raises the stake of, well, this is the one time you get to vote, so you better get your vote in and make sure that it happens. But, you know, most, the rest of the time we're not voting and we, we might be registering our views by actually like calling or emailing or, you know, tweeting out to a representative. Um, it's debatable how much they actually pay attention or care depend and we can we'll talk about gerrymandering in a minute and why that that's that's <laughs> alienating but um i think a lot of people feel kind of shut out of the political process and and you know what you were saying with having um so many people for each representative um you're probably not going to get to talk to your representative you're going to get to talk to somebody who's on their staff and then maybe if what you have to say is important enough they'll kick it upstairs Unless you've got some juice. And I think this is one of the big issues as well. It's not just that people who are wealthy and can make campaign contributions get, get the ears more often, not just of you know Republicans, but also Democrats. This is clearly an equal opportunity thing. But, you know, um, corporations do it as well. And, you know, since Citizens United, corporations can spend whatever they like and, and it's, it's considered to be free speech on their part. Um, we, I think because of these sorts of things, the ordinary person comes to feel like, well, they, their voice doesn't matter very much. And that, that is alienating. 
So, you know, either it's like the stakes are super high and you better vote. If you don't vote, you're letting everybody down. But your vote doesn't really count for all that that much. I mean, in this this election, in some places it could, you know, like if you're in Wisconsin or Michigan. Uh, but if you're living in... But if you were in... Yeah, California. Kentucky or California. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, and, and also, you know, when we, when we look at, well, let's talk about gerrymandering. I think that's, that's something quite important. And we probably have to define that because some people don't, don't know what it is. And we didn't say it. Isn't that a type of salamander? Yeah. It's the movement it makes as it, as it wobbles around. <laughs> I was going to say, we didn't say it in the sufficiently, uh, disapproving tone of voice for everyone to know that it's a oh. bad thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, but gerrymandering really is, yeah, it's, 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 it's terrible. It's, it's, and, and Wisconsin is one of the worst states for it. Uh, we actually had a case, unfortunately, turned down by the Supreme Court uh, where they could have done something about it. And it produces these these results. I mean, we were joking around before the show about one, one of the uh, legislative districts that spans a couple different cities and saying, wow, these, th- this doesn't make any sense. It's nice that the candidate won, but... What did they? What are they actually reigning over? You know, and so we, you know, it's not just a problem for Wisconsin. North Carolina is also egregiously gerrymandered, and there's all sorts of other places in Texas. And what it leads to is really bad political representation because it creates all these safe seats for people who, you know, if you live in that district, the Republicans are going to win or the Democrats are going to win. And that's all there is to it, you know, unless there's somebody really screws up. And, you know, for somebody like myself, uh, an independent, it's it's even worse because, you know, our, our votes essentially count for for nothing against the the mass of whatever, you know, whether it's red or blue has been put in there um, for for the district. And, you know, I, I can see how a lot of people would feel like, well, the fix is in. My vote doesn't matter. My voice doesn't matter. I think, I think it's not just their, their vote. I think it's that they feel that um, no matter what they, what, what they do, it's not going to make any real difference. So that's a, that's yeah, a, a real alienation, right? Yeah, it is like quintessentially alienation. That this thing that we are you know, supposedly participating in our our democracy our our political process in which we give the the voice to the people to at least elect our representatives and in some states we have even direct democracy with a binding referendum that yeah. changes the laws directly um that you know if if you don't feel that uh because the way the rules were drawn up that you can't ever win like why why would anyone have any incentive to actually go out and play the game? Yeah, and you know, it's not just that you can't win, which is bad enough by itself. Because you can't win, nobody has to listen to you. Nobody has yeah. to pay attention to what you have to say. You know? You, you and call I, up your representative and it's like, Well, who are you? Why why do I care? You know, and I, I think this also kind of figures in to you know, think about the, the recent um uh presidential elections going back a ways. Um, by the time that it gets around here to Wisconsin, the primaries are, you know, pretty far along. You know, we're not in Super mm-hmm. Tuesday. We don't really have much of a, 
a choice in deciding like who's going to go on to the big leagues and and actually like engage in the primary contest uh, that is the the national election. Um, and so you know it's easy to get a little bit disheartened about that and to say, well, you know, we're stuck with what this party puts forward and what this party puts forward. Um, there's there's all of you know that sort of issue, and then there's you know the, the incredible role that donations and and money plays in that. So even if you did belong to a political party, um, other than ultimately being told, well, get behind the candidate, um, whoever that happens to be that somebody else has selected, you don't really have that much role to play, it feels like, in a lot of cases. And, and you know, sometimes you get candidates that you can feel strongly about and be like, yeah, I really like this person. That hasn't been the case most of the time in my experience. <laughs> and I think there's there's also groups that get, you know, really taken for granted by both parties. Um, and they don't get they don't get very well treated by by the parties. And that that also would be alienating, you know, this expectation that well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna you're gonna vote for the other party and show us, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so a potential solution, not that I would say is a panacea for this particular portion of the alienation would be something along the lines of an instant runoff where mm. you say like, okay, here, here are my, like, here are all the candidates and I can rank them one to 10. Yeah. Say if there are 10 and um, this way I can say like, oh, like say I'm, I'm very uh, I'm libertarian. Like uh, I, I voted for Joe. And then, and then my next pre- preference might be Trump or something, and and on the way down. And so the whole idea is that, you know, whoever uh, has the least amount of votes on the first round, they they get dropped off the ballot, and all of their votes are then reapportioned yeah. to the next candidate, whatever their number twos were. And so this allows you to say, okay. I'm not throwing my vote away. I'm still putting out, this is the person that I would most prefer. But just because I choose this person as my most prefer, uh, preferred, yeah, that's the word, um, that doesn't mean that I can't also say, if that person does not make it, then this would be my next preference. And it also gives you this uh, feeling that the people that actually win it, instead of having a first pass the post where you can have a person that wins with you know, less than 50% winning the election, um, that you always have someone that has a uh, majority winning an election. Yeah. They call that ranked choice voting, right? I think in some other places. Uh, ranked choice or instant runoff. It's yeah. very, I think they're interchangeable. I think terms. there's a state, and I'm blanking on which one it is, that actually Maine. has that. Oh, right, right, yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, that would, that I, I would think that would be uh, good that would produce more participation and maybe better well better thought out voting uh, on the part of a lot of people you know um, but uh, yeah that I, I don't see that as, as, as likely to get passed in too many places do you no because the the incumbent parties it makes sense for them to be against that yeah you know so this is not something that we were actually going to talk about, but I think this also fits in with the alienation thing as well. So we're kind of caught in a bind because putting aside the, the, the massive partisanship and, and divides between, you know, liberals and conservatives and, you know, Republicans and, and Democrats on so many things, 
Um, you're right. They do kind of all come together in making sure that nothing is really going to be different going forward as far as how things are done. You know, I, we were talking before this about how some, um, you know, some of my colleagues outside of the United States, they look at what we go through with the Electoral College and they're like, why don't you, why don't you move away from that? Why don't you get rid of that? And then we say, you know, if we could, we would. But <laughs> do, you, do you understand how difficult it would be to change it? You would have to have a constitutional amendment. And then they say, well, that doesn't sound so hard. Why don't, why don't you do that? And then you say, well, take a look at what it requires, what, what sort of consensus you have to build in order to get that. And so on the one hand, there's no way that you're going to bring everybody together and get them to agree to that um, just because of the factionalization that we have and how divided people are and how distrustful they are of the other side. Even if you could, though, they'd be like, well, this goes directly against our interests. Why the hell would we do that? Why would right. we open the door to having things, you know, uh, more, uh, uh, you know, participational? This is a terrible idea. And, and unfortunately, we're stuck with all of these people as our rulers and our representatives. And to get rid of all of them at one fell swoop would be very difficult to, to even imagine, let alone pull off. So we're kind of stuck with it. And that, that I think this, the cumulative effect of this is that, that people feel despondent. They, they feel disengaged. They feel like, oh, I am going to go and vote because I, I want to make a statement. But then what happens, what happens after that? What, 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 what did your political will actually accomplish. It's almost like a Sisyphean task, right, of pushing the boulder up the hill, and then it just falls down on the other side, and, and you, you push it up again. And you, at, at a certain point, Sisyphus has to say, man, this is BS. Why am I doing this? <laughs> but if we, if we do that, then that doesn't work either, right? It's almost, a, this is a real conundrum, because if we disengage totally from voting, then other people's votes count and, and, and ours don't at all. And mm -hmm. then we get perhaps even worse outcomes. Yeah. That, that, that little modicum of, um, not power, but like, uh, agency. Yeah. The capacity to determine things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so why, why shouldn't we just like, you know, force a, a perfect monoculture and um, make sure that everyone um, just thinks the same way here. Wouldn't that make everything just better? Well, I mean, trying to do that in a multicultural society is, is very difficult anyway, but I, I think that would, that would be a bad, bad approach. I mean, there are a lot of people who are like, I just want everyone to shut up. I, I, I don't want any more of this argument, right? Just pick something and stick to it. Um, that's not a very rational way to, to get good outcomes, right? I mean, part of why we want democratic processes is so we can take different perspectives into view um, and, and hear from other people and, and have them represented. And, you know, I think it, it, once you start talking about, like, having unity imposed on people, um, it sounds like some sort of totalitarianism or, or you know, fascist approach to things and those have been tried they're they almost never work uh the way that Long they're term. well yeah even in the short term they, I mean, <laughs> they, they impose a lot of cruelty and brutality upon people but they also they're pragmatically they don't work 
You know, mm-hmm. they wind up ruining their economies and um, getting themselves into stupid military adventures and getting people killed off. And um, I, I think we can say that there's been sort of a historical verdict on those. I mean, we do have arguably fascist or, or totalitarian um totalitarian light, we'll call them at this point, governments that have arisen within recent years that we can point to, but I don't think their long-term prospects are particularly good. It reminds me of um, Star Wars and Princess Leia talking to Darth Vader saying, the more you tighten your grip, Lord Vader, the more star systems slip through your grasp. Yeah, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, do you (laughs) think that really works that way? or? Um. Well, it's either they slip or they, like, you, you crush them out. I know, yeah. And, and you, you... You get conformity. Prevent, but... you, you get a conformity, but you also you know, destroy the spark that, like, moves a lot of modern economies as well as, like, who wants to live in that drudgery? Yeah. And, and constant fear of potential death. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Imposing some sort of... Um absolute across the board orthodoxy usually it doesn't just like stop you know innovation in the sense of like you know things in in the tech sector i mean it it does it across the board it it it, it destroys the spirit of of people so yeah yeah politics business philosophy the universities science like if it doesn't fit within the perfect confines that have been defined by the ruling class then it becomes you know outside of the bounds and anyone who's doing that becomes persona non grata yeah i mean you gotta you gotta push pretty hard sometimes to actually get yourself in trouble in some of those institutions but some people Mm -hmm. manage to do it anyway you know and then and then there's all sorts of irrational inequities as well Um, i was just reading something so this is a little bit off topic but it's something i'm gonna uh i'm thinking about posting and it had to do with um uh student evaluations so this person did an experiment, and you could do it because it was an online class, and they created an avatar and persona for themselves, uh, one being female, one being male, different names, different pictures that were being used, and then they interacted oh. as the same TA with all of these students. And it was a big class. It was like you know, 200 students or so. And then at the end of the semester, they had evaluations. And the evaluations for the female presenting um, person, the, the TA, were significantly worse than they were for the male. And, and, and we know that this is the case in, in, in student evaluations. And, and you know, it, it's an irrational thing. It's not, I mean, I can tell you that just looking at evaluations of some of my female peers, they're not teaching worse than, than male teachers are. The, the bar is pretty low for most of the male teachers already. And <laughs> we, talk, <laughs> we can do a whole show on, on that, right? Um, I will concur on that. Yeah. And, and uh, so it's, it's clearly because of some sort of bias or, you know, and, there, and so there's inequities like that. And those don't get addressed very often, you know. There's, there's inequities like that based on on race in our society um classism plays a huge role you know so when we when we go back to this like let's impose some solution from on high it almost never fixes those things adequately you know Mm -hmm. um what we need is is much more 
lower level, fixing things like on the ground, changing things as, as individuals and in our relationships, but also in political ways. But maybe we could say in locally political ways. And if there's going to be something coming in from up on high, um, maybe it's got to interface with those things adequately, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, moving on from uh, totalitarianism. Thankfully. Um, I guess, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what was your, your thoughts on like the difference from 2016 to now? You know, um, 2016, if you think about how the candidates were selected, um and the primary season, it, it was really quite different than, than this one. The, on the Democrat side, we had, you know, like an heir apparent Hillary Clinton who had, you know, put in her time, sort of like how John McCain had been in the previous uh, election cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, McCain got to be the candidate after, after Bush because he'd, he'd been in there and he'd done all the, these sort of things. And I think Clinton kind of thought that, you know, and a lot of her, her backers thought that it was kind of owed to her. And there was really only one other candidate um, that was worth noticing, and that was Bernie Sanders. And, and he's, he's, you know, a very interesting person, but kind of an outlier. He, he was able to get a, a movement going that, that could, you know, last into this election cycle as well. Um, but, you know, he is an independent who caucuses with, with uh, Democrats. And, and so on that side, it was like, well, the you know, there'll be an election, there'll be a primary season. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of people kind of felt like the fix was in. And there wasn't an awful lot of enthusiasm, I think, for Clinton as a candidate. And then we had the weirdness of the Republican thing with all these different candidates. You know, for the first time, we had to have like, you know, separate debates because they couldn't all be on the stage at the same time. And we get this, this at that time, you know, crazy... Uh, nutty uncle Trump um, somehow making it through all of these these things. I mean, what we know now, what he did was he mobilized a lot of um, aspects of American life that had been there in the Tea Party and that he could appeal to, like like you know racism. Um, and it turned out that that was that was quite a potent message. And then he could also like just say things that were insulting to other candidates, like, you know, Ted making fun of Ted Cruz's wife, for example, um, mm-hmm. making fun of his father, calling Marco little Marco, you know, Marco Rubio, and and uh, just all sorts of crazy stuff that the people were like. Can you believe this guy? You know, how is he going to survive the next like challenge to him? And he kept on like blowing through it, sort of like a Mr. Magoo, you know, of, yeah. of politics and all these other like traditional candidates. I mean, think about Jeb Bush, you know, um, he was the front runner and he just disappeared. <laughs> you know? yeah. That was the end of his, his, his political career. Right. So <laughs> so you've got these two candidates, the guy who's um you know, claiming that he's a, is the successful businessman doesn't appear to like be able to hold a thought very long. You know, people are kind of wondering about him. And then you've got Hillary Clinton running as well, not running here in Wisconsin, as, as we know. Right? And, and and there's the alienation once again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and you know, people did also vote for libertarians or for greens. And uh, there was also the Constitution Party at the time. Um, and you know, so, and, and, and interestingly, I mean, 
uh, turnout was up, we can say. Um, so that's kind of a good thing. And then we had, you know, the midterms and turnout was pretty good for these, these midterms as well. People are getting more interested in politics. But they seem to be getting, like we said before, they're, they're interested in politics in part because they're like, we can't let those SOBs win, you know? Right. Um, and I, I don't know if how else Go ahead. Oh, yeah, just the, the idea of, like, if your politics are screw the other guy, then, like, yeah. why are you in this place where, like, politics and consensus and, you know, rational debate are something that we ostensibly actually care about or just do we not anymore yeah well that's the thing is if enough people don't care about it and are more into it to um what's what's the the meme version of it to um not to own the other people but to and not to enrage them i'm blanking on it right now um um, you know to to provoke the 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 other side mm -hmm. um i mean that's not that's not a that's not a viable political platform. <laughs> That's not going to get no. anything done. And um, yeah, I, I think if there's if there's too much of a critical mass of that, then we're we're in deep trouble. And then if you're one of the people who wants to see some sort of rational politics and consensus, that would be quite quite dismaying. Yeah, very disheartening. Yeah, uh, and, but I think. We do have a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel because we're going to actually use a little bit of our philosophy to deal with how to deal with these things. Before we get to that, though, let me let me I just thought of this. Let me bounce a question off of you. Okay. So this was an election where nobody really got what they wanted. I mean, nobody really got what they wanted from the primary season. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and I, I think there's even plenty of people uh, in in the conservative and Republican camp who are like, yeah, I mean, this guy, I don't I don't know that we really, you know, he we, we voted for him back in 2016, but he's he's a hot mess. And I don't know that he's exactly what we want for the the party. Right. Um, I mean, they're happy that he got them the judges that they wanted, but that was that was basically it. Judges and tax cuts, you know, before he he pushed Ryan uh, out of the the uh, the whole basically yeah, yeah basically the whole party. Right? Uh, <laughs> Wisconsin has done terribly, by the way, in terms of yeah, its we, Republican we, political leadership. We lost yeah. Ryan, we lost Priebus. They just got swallowed up by this administration. But but going back to this, right? So so this is an election where nobody really got what they wanted, unless what you were is a centrist who loves gridlock and loves people fighting with each other. Would it be better? If we'd had like a dramatic Republican victory or a dramatic Democratic victory, like let's say, let's make it something like this. And this is kind of a comic book, sci-fi kind of situation. They win the presidency. They, they win a majority of the Senate and they win it in such a way that they've got 60 seats and they win, you know, a vast majority of the House of Representatives. Let's say they got like 300 representatives, right? So you've got like a clear um, domination of not just the presidency, but the whole legislative branch, whether it's Republican or Democrat, would that have been a better outcome than this messy, 
now we have to figure out what what our way forward is going to be even though we all hate each other at this point in time. <laughs> is, is it is it better to have like a you know an absolute like here's the people who won now everybody else shut up and and get with the program what do you, what do you think i guess it depends on who you're at who you are and so i think like right now i think the large corporations love this outcome oh, because there's going yeah. to be gridlock and there's very little chance of big change will happen which would usually costs them money or they have to innovate out of it to yeah. deal with the new political realities um you know um, that, that's actually you know, a, it, that's a great point though and not only do they like it because of that they like it because then they can keep still funneling money to both parties and getting the results right. that they want right 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 absolutely um but i guess my personal like political proclivities seem to be that some of the policy positions I think are really necessary for, you know, a a more perfect union, a world that has more flourishing in it um, are only being represented by one party. And I guess from a personal position, I think like it would, it requires that at least in the the political landscape that we're currently in. Um, but do I think that's good? I don't know. Like it, I guess if, if it was actually the, the, the will of the people that everyone was actually like, Hey, look, like for the most part, we're all going in this direction. Yeah. Um, I would say I'd be like rather happy with that because not only is it what I personally, I think it would be, better results in better policy but i also it's not like me or or the people that i'm with forcing the issue on onto someone and and causing extra alienation that way but that it's it's you know politically popular and people want to do it yeah yeah that makes that makes sense um it's i mean it's interesting that there are some things that I think you and I could probably find some common ground on and say, I, I you know, this is this is this policy <clears throat> represents a certain ethical stance, a, a, a right way of approaching things like not letting people think about healthcare, right? Um, our healthcare system is a total mess. So many people fall through the, the cracks. Um, even if even if you're like totally, ah, it should all be free market. It's not a free market. It's a it's it's just a a mess. And you you compare us to other countries, and you, you see that they do have universal health care. It's not perfect, but it sure is way better than what we've got right now. And it's it's a nice thing to have during a pandemic too. Um, so don't get me on to uh, asymmetric knowledge problems. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, that could be another show too, right? It could um, be, yeah. all different variants of that. That would be, that would actually be a good topic. But so we, we could say that, um, this, this would be a good policy to get through and, and it's, it's probably not going to get through due to gridlock and, um, even if it's like a pared down version and it gets pushed through, if it's, if it's very unpopular, then it can become this, you know, like this canker essentially, you know, like the, the affordable care act, um, that I'll, I'll tell you, you know, we, we use it because we're, we're small business people and, uh, thank God for it because otherwise we wouldn't have medical treatment for all the things that we need to do. And, and we pay a, a still a good bit of money, uh, in the marketplaces and it's not, you know, perfectly efficient or anything like that, <laughs> but you know, it, that, that has become a bone of contention 
for so many people on the conservative side, they just they want to kill it no matter what, right? And then other people are like, oh, we've got to got to stop them from killing it. And my question to them is always, how are you going to make it better so it actually does what it's supposed to do? And then they just look at me like I'm stupid. You know? Right. <laughs> um, but you know, when when if we did have a, a clear majority on on the the blue side, maybe we would be able to push through things like that. Uh, which we which we're definitely going to have to do sooner or later. I mean, things can't go on this way permanently. There there are some some things that we probably could just keep kicking down down the road, but I don't know that this is one of those. You know, figuring out what to do about student loan debt—that's probably another one we can't keep kicking down the road forever, right? Right. So, but yeah, I, I, we really need to. Uh, move Talk to, about philosophy. Like, philosophy, yeah. And specifically, yeah. like some of the strategies that we can employ in order to you know, have a little bit more equanimity in our lives, uh, you know, tranquility in our thoughts. And so, so one of them is the, yeah. Well, before we do that, um, what if somebody <laughs> was to object, wait a second, in this terrible, you know, screwed up political situation, who are you to have equanimity? You know, uh, aren't you like carving out your own little private space for yourself? You, you privileged person, you know, how can you not care about how bad things are? I mean, I think there's a good response to that. And I, I think you have a good response to that as well, right? Yeah, if, if just because there are trials and tribulations and bad things happening within the world um, doesn't mean that you can't find your own equanimity as well as it is really important for you to have a, a at least a modicum of equanimity in order to actually uh, go out and produce actions that result in better outcomes in the world. And you say like, oh, there's all these things going and everything is on fire. And it's like, <laughs> well, if I'm here and I'm going ah, and, yeah, yeah. and running around in circles, it helps nothing. It doesn't help me and it doesn't help them. I need to have some center in order to actually go out and help them. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great response. And it also, you know, kind of models what we want to be moving towards. We can't all be like uh, engaging in, in, you know, crisis actions all the time. That's, that's not a life, you know, that's, oh. that's a... That's something that sometimes we have to do to preserve a life, but I, I don't think that that's something that we want. So I think that's a great response. That that makes perfect sense. Hopefully, uh, listeners who are enraged at us for uh, suggesting that we should carve out a little time and space for ourselves apart from, you know, constantly be, being engaged in politics, uh, will will hear it that way too. <laughs> um. So one of the things you can do is you can employ some historical perspective. Um, you know, avoid making these usually wrong and easy analogies um, about like the actual enormity of the the perceived bad that we're in. You know, like um, you know, look at like the fall of empires, or the sacking of cities, or you know, plagues that are worse than the plague that we're currently in, like the Black Death that killed thirty six percent of the population of Europe. And it's like we're right now because of our really good health system, you know, COVID is only down to what one or 2% death rate, at least in the United States. Um, you know, think of like half of everyone that, you know, dying. And like, that really puts it in perspective. Like we, we've made it through that as a species in the past and we can make it through this. 
Yeah, I, I think that could also lend itself to somebody going too far with that point of view and saying, oh, well, see, if it's not as bad as the Black Death, it's not really bad, you know. No. But I, I think some some historical, you know, the, the answer to, like, misusing historical perspective is let's get even more historical perspective, I think. And, you know, you might say, well, that's history. That's not philosophy. Well, you know. Since the 19th century, philosophy has, at least certain kinds of philosophy, been very much about cultivating historical perspective, you know. And we could even say that this is something that was around before, you know. Marcus Aurelius, in his meditations, suggests we should do exactly what you were saying. Think about the fall. I don't know if you remember, mentioned the falls of empires, but he certainly talked about the sacking of cities, right? Um, how, how all these things happen over and over again. And, you know, the human race still continues on. Um, it's not the absolute end of the, the world, although it may be the end of a political regime. Yeah. And then you know, the next thing, as we were talking about earlier, gaining a little equanimity in order to actually focus on what really is in your control, that what you can actually do to uh, materially or mentally affect the well-being of those people around you that you like want to do good for. Yeah, and and you know, I think it's important to be realistic in the amount of good that we can we can do. Um, and for one thing, anything political, if it involves other people, they might say no to us. They might use our our efforts and then not not return anything on the investment of time and energy and even emotion that we've made. But that's that's not our problem. That's, in, in a certain respect, that's them just being not so great people. It didn't, it didn't mean that everything that we did was totally in vain. Um, you know, everybody who went around canvassing, I, I saw people too, you know, saying, oh man, I spent all this money, you know, supporting candidates, you know, sending in these, these contributions, and these are people who didn't have a lot of money to begin with. Um, uh, it was all wasted. No, it wasn't. It wasn't wasted. It just didn't accomplish what it was that you hoped for it to accomplish. And and so having the, uh, a better perspective on that can make one feel less, I don't know, angry or sad or, you know, upset. I would say it's really, at least within Stoke philosophy, one of the big things is that you don't want to put your desire in the outcomes of things, but in doing the right things well. Yeah. Um, and so just because the outcome didn't have the, the outcome that you wanted w was going out there and trying to advocate for your position, not the good thing to do in the time, just because it didn't have the exact outcome that you wanted. That's actually a great point. You know, um, you think about like canvassing or um, being on a phone or text bank and getting, you know, responses from people like, screw you, your candidate's awful, you know. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, Epictetus, when he's talking about the philosopher Socrates, who the, the Stoics looked at as kind of like a, they thought if anyone's going to be a sage, probably so Socrates was. Epictetus said Socrates had about a one in 1,000 success rate. 
You know, maybe one person out of a thousand that he talked to actually changed their life for the better. It doesn't mean that he that he was wasting his time all that time. Um, he was actually doing a good thing. You don't you don't control what other people do with the message. And if you can say that, then things become less um, high stakes, right? So if I want to convince you that you made uh, a bad voting decision and you should vote differently next time, you and I can have a conversation, and I can pursue it up to a certain point, and you can say, "Hey, listen, you're not going to convince me," and I can say, "Okay, but just." Put the ideas out there, you know, food for thought for you. That's probably much more likely to be successful than if I keep on pushing stuff down your throat, you know, because then you're like that guy, those people, you know, they're yeah. they're they're awful that way. So sometimes by um, using these these techniques or insights that do help us to to have equanimity, um, we can actually be more effective. So, like. There are lots of interesting techniques in, in persuasion. There's a big like topic within a psychology and philosophy of like what what is actually good persuasive technique. Yeah. And and almost never will you get someone who's like, oh yes, I've now seen the light. I'm going to change my entire life because I've changed this pillar of my entire being and like from, from a, a lot from, of times, from a single philosophical argument. You mean? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, that never so happens. You, <laughs> You know, there, there are certain things that people kind of rest their personalities on and they're yeah. like the, the, the worldview that they live in. And, um, and they're, they protect these ideas like they protect their body from harm. And yeah. it's actually interesting. There's been studies on w what portions of the brain light up when someone is, uh, uh, has one of their core values um, be criticized uh, or criticized or poked at with a good argument and it, it it results in the same area of the brain that uh results from like oh i shouldn't touch the hot stove because your brain's like i need to save that portion of my brain that is that is really important to me it's going to cause me a lot of pain if i lose that um as well as you get things like the backfire effect where people who are presented with information that directly contradicts an idea and they actually if you don't do this well if you're just like you should think do this and you just throw a whole bunch of facts at them. Yeah. Often you'll have a point where they actually believe that position even more on, um, which is yeah. kind of crazy. It's, it's very interesting, but you know, there, there are techniques out there. Um, there's a, a group on the internet that, is, that does what they call street epistemology where they, yeah, talk they don't about what that actually attack. is. Cause I've heard about right. that and I don't really understand that that well. <laughs> okay. So uh, epistemology is the, um, the way how you know things, um, in in a really simple way of putting it, and so street epistemology is a way of of having conversations, and the the point of the conversation is to exit the conversation with both people enjoying that they've had the conversation, um, and so you're you're never gonna like be trying to like trigger someone or attack mm. their core values. You're you're asking, okay, you hold a position that um, you usually hold very strongly and usually it's the best if you're talking about a position that makes you change your actions in the real world. Um, and, and then you ask them, why do you believe that is true? How did you come to that conclusion? And, and a lot of times people have bad reasons, you know, ad populum, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, just because that's how they grow up, grew up, and that's the ideas that their parents told them. There's all these things, and they're they're not 
logically sound. And so that that's a really good way to get people not to the aha moment, but a hmm moment. And the hmm moments are the like the really good ones because it's like, oh, once you're in whom, you're like, I'm in a position where I might be willing to learn. You know, the the flip side of that is, so if you are presenting something that's an alternative to what, what they think, and, and not necessarily as you know, like a, a total package, but just at least some, some alternative ways of thinking about it, they're more likely to be willing to consider it if you haven't been a jerk to them in the the conversation right so they can not and it's not just about well i don't like how that person made me feel it's also about you representing a reasonable person who sees things somehow differently and then they can think well what what, what's going on there i mean that person seems to be normal in other respects and yet they they hold this position i don't i don't know maybe i have to look into that position a bit more you know Mm -hmm. so um well, we should talk about the, the, the practice that we wanted to close on because we're getting close to the end of the, the show. Yeah. So um, go ahead. So in this time where people might be finding like, okay, well, now what? Like the election's over and, and I, I've been so engrossed in this, this giant you know, pageantry for the last, what, feels like two years of forever <laughs> yeah. um, or two years going on forever. Yeah. Um, but you know, Find some practice that will either mentally or materially make your life better and then set an implementation intention to set it in motion. And so an implementation intention is basically an if-then sta- if statement. So, for example, if I said I wanted to make a, um, a change and like improve my health a little bit and I'm going to take up jogging. And so I say, if I wake up in the morning, then I'm going to put on my shoes and go for a three-mile run. It helps even better if you put your shoes right in front of your bedroom door <laughs> in the morning so you can't even open your door without having to move those shoes. That's even better. But the idea is to to make a, um, a plan that's usually an if-then statement and either say it to yourself out loud or write it down. And that seems to um, really improve the outcomes of you actually doing it. And and hopefully the outcome here is that you're going to have some sort of practice, you know, what is it, meditation or exercise or, I don't know, reading a good book or... or Reaching out or to writing. a friend who you haven't talked to for a while. Yeah, you know? or, or having a better, more substantive conversations in a uh, constructive sense and not a adversarial sense. Yeah, now why, why is this a good practice to get into? Um, well, you've already hit on part of it. It's going to improve your life in some, some manner. But it also helps to distract you from all of the turmoil and uh, partisanship that we, we've gone through and, and put some new ideas into your head. You know, focus on something else for a change. And, and you could actually like say, okay, every time that I'm tempted to like look at an uh, opinion poll, I'm going to do this instead. <laughs> I, or at least I'm going to think about the thing that I'm changing instead. Yeah. And, and you don't want to get ruminating about all these political things and like it's just uh, spinning in your mind's eye. But I think we need to leave you today with the words of Mark Twain. Loyalty to country always. Loyalty to government when it deserves it. 